Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Pernham. Mike is the Director of Innovations and External Relations at the Janelia Research Campus in Ashburn, Virginia. At Janelia, Mike leads the Department of Innovation Management and oversees external relations and library services. He handles technology management, IP protection, licensing, and dissemination for Janelia with unique attention to open science initiatives. Prior to Janelia, Mike had roles in technology transfer at the University of Texas Medical Branch and the University of Virginia. Mike was also the director of IP and commercial contracts at UVA startup Microlab Diagnostics, as well as the director of IP and licensing at the diagnostic testing company Health Diagnostic Laboratory. Mike has spent the last 12 years negotiating and managing a wide variety of out and in license agreements, intellectual property right transfers from open source to collaborative development arrangements, managing IP portfolios, and leading litigation efforts. Mike has been active in LES in autumn since 2009 and is presently the chair-elect of the life science sector of LES USA Canada and is on the board of Virginia Bio. Mike received his PhD in biophysical chemistry from Rice University, where, as an NIH biotechnology trainee and Keck fellow in the University Area Molecular Biophysics Program, he studied protein folding. Prior to grad school, Mike was a chemist at PPG Industries and received a BS in chemistry and a BA in math from the University of Texas at Austin. Also, since 2009, Mike has been a registered patent agent. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks again for taking part in the podcast. Um, Let me start things off by asking you, Mike, about your journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to tech transfer and then ultimately to Janelia? I certainly can. So um, out of undergraduate, I was a polymer chemist for a number of years with PPG industry and was looking for a career change into something more biotech focused. Um, I ended up back at Rice University because I was from Houston and wanted to go back to uh, that area. And they had a lot of great cross-discipline coursework, uh, collaboration across departments and and special programs. And that's where I realized I wanted to do something more general and business oriented than than the bench science that I was that I was doing at the time. Um, so, and then even without you know really knowing much about the history of the subject, I hadn't got into reading about technology transfer or anything yet. I had sort of a an affinity for the concept of, of this innovation that starts with basic science in universities and and uh, national labs and stuff. And then s- somehow that found its way out into the world, uh, kind of the way that uh, Vannevar Bush formulated it uh, back in, you know, after World War II. 
Um, and then also, I remember distinctly as a teenager and then as an undergraduate, I was in a, a lab that uh, where I was doing some undergraduate research. And there were a number of technologies that made it into magazines and one in our lab that was meant to essentially heal broken bones really rapidly. Um, and, a, you know, like a science fiction type thing. But I read that several times from several different labs and not a single one of them ever made it to market that I found out about. And I was sort of intrigued by why that didn't happen, what was going on there, was there a way to help it along, and what was going on. So eventually back to Rice, um, I had gone to a, a talk by the tech transfer director there, Neela Bakuni. Um, I, I begged my way into an internship with her for a couple months, and then that helped me get an entry position at University of Texas Medical Branch for a year. Um, and then I moved to the University of Virginia, and that was a really great experience. Um, the UVA office back then was, uh, well, I, I assume today, was a really big office, lots of activity. Um, and it was a program that Bob McWright built. And he had done it to sort of mentor a lot of young people coming into the career and, uh, and, and learn about all the different aspects of tech transfer. And even though he wasn't there uh, when I joined UVA, a lot of those uh, programs, this training, the support endured. And then there was a lot of just general activity. So we had angel groups that we worked with. The Coulter Foundation um, had these innovation grants. It was one of those uh, Coulter Foundation bioengineering schools. We had a broad funding partnership with AstraZeneca, Technology Review Board, all kinds of stuff that I got involved with, and I learned a lot. Um, and then after a while, I, uh, I realized there wasn't much more that I could do there, wasn't much more to learn. I had a lot of great experiences, so um, and I have kind of an entrepreneurial streak, so I, I looked for uh, more or less the first startup that would have me, um, and that was in Charlottesville, uh, working in... in um, micro diagnostics for a rapid DNA. Um, and then that foundered after a little while. And I went to a bigger company in Richmond and handled their IP and licensing uh, for a number of years. And then uh, after a number of years, that one foundered too. But um, I was looking uh, for my next thing. And a friend of mine, James Zanowitz, who's now at Tulane University, has said his former position, which was leading tech transfer at Genelia, was was open at the time. And Janelia was a good fit for me in terms of like the technologies that uh, that were coming out of there. I had the opportunity to lead my own office and also work um, from a new perspective on tech transfer, which is a little more integrated into the research mission and focused on dissemination as opposed to the more um, narrow focus on on commercialization and licensing. Uh, so to me, it was a little more encompassing of that the entire Vannevar Bush model. Um, and, uh, so it's as many, as successful as many offices are in this space. Um, it's still, I see the collective, you know, production of knowledge from the institutes and universities that include, but they're not limited to patentable inventions that make the, the biggest impact on the world. And I felt like with the way that this is structured at Genelia, I could get a little more of that, that broader perspective, even though it's a much smaller place. I could have that access and that activity in uh, in discovery research, and uh, and support the dissemination model in all sorts of ways, including commercial licensing. So that's where I am now at uh, at Genelia. Yeah, and I do a lot of 
research for these podcasts. And I found Janelia just fascinating. And I suspect that a lot of our listeners may not be overly familiar with it. So can you tell us a little bit more about Janelia and particularly about the really unique and I think innovative research campus you have and more importantly, how Janelia even got its start? Yeah, definitely. So Janelia is part of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which a lot more people are familiar with. Uh, HHMI has been around since the 50s, founded um, by Hughes himself. It really didn't get uh, going until they uh, they sold Hughes Aircraft, which was the, the main source of money in 1985, and then turned it um, into a, a more robust sort of funding mechanism. And so HHMI had always been a, a people, not projects, um, funding uh, source. So the idea is that you look for very talented, motivated, and active people, and and you give them ample funding and resources, and that sort of let them do what they will. And then, you know, every seven years they get a, a rather robust uh, review uh, to determine how how much they've affected science. So it is a very high threshold that they have to pass. But that was the the model that had been out there and continues to be out there with the investigator program. So then in 1999, um, Jerry Rubin, who was uh, then uh, vice president of HHMI, got together with the the uh, president-designate Tom Such, and uh, they actually came up with this concept on the back of a napkin, what if we had a sort of a, a bricks and mortar, an actual institute itself, instead of funding out uh, investigators at uh, at host institutions, something I glossed over a little bit. The, the investigator program is not centralized. It's at host institutions. So each one of those um, investigators applies. They become an employee of HHMI, but they stay wherever they are, and the funding goes to them out there. So Janelia would be uh, the opposite of that in that they would all be in Janelia itself. Um, so the idea was how we could expand and diversify HHMI's uh, strategies to to drive science forward. HHMI does have a unique position in the world. It's all self-funded. It's based off of an endowment, um, gives it a certain privilege, but also responsibility to be that cutting edge, to do things that, say, funding from a federal government um, is unlikely to be able to support politically or, you know, justify just throwing money at some smart people and seeing what happens. So HHMI sort of fills a role there. And this would be another experiment on on what could result if you brought people together and we brought a lot of different uh, diverse uh, fields, diverse talents uh, and people together um, into a single institute with a lot of resources, with a lot of those the um, hardware and lab uh, facilities right there and see what could happen. And that was um, modeled a lot after uh, the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, which is associated with uh, with the University of Cambridge, and AT&T's Bell Labs. And these are two places that just have, you know, they've had an enormous impact on our modern lives. MRC, you know, that's where uh, Watson and Crick discovered the structure of DNA, and that's just one of many discoveries and developments in biology that carries, you know, carried science forward, made those those giant leaps. And then Bell Labs, of course, is, is similar, you know, the, the place where the transistor was founded. But the idea with both of those places was you had these talented people in small labs. Um, so the senior folks are not separate 
you know, writing grants constantly. They're, they're still involved in everything. They're hands-on. Um, but they have a lot of resources and they're around a lot of people to discuss ideas and things like this. And also, um, there's no teaching. There, there aren't uh, classes. We don't have undergraduates. We do have some grad students, but they are um, actually not ours. They do our research at, at Janelia. They're actually students from Johns Hopkins University oh, wow. who have done their coursework already. And then they come to Janelia to do the research. So those those sort of underlying principles, the small research, research groups, uh, actively engaged in Ben's science, internal funding, great support, um, limited tenure. So it's still on that model. We don't have a tenure system. They are hired in and they're on contracts and they go through these reviews. So you, you're brought in. Um, and currently the model is uh, is we try to get people that are just out of training. They get an initial five years with a small lab. They get a, an additional five years with a, a somewhat expanded lab. A handful will continue on and they'll be more veteran. They'll be more mentors to everybody else and lead some of these um, these research areas. But the idea is, is really to bring people in, get them started, and resource, give them resources, let them be independent right away while they're still young. So we can avoid that whole problem with like, you know, the first R01 grants that researchers get today is, I think it was 42 years old, but the last time I heard that was years ago. So who knows how old people are when they're getting their first independent fund. So here they can do it right out of a PhD or right out of a short postdoc. One of the interesting things, though, was that, so they, that this was the idea, we're going to make this model, we're going to start this research institute, let's start building it. They didn't know what they were going to study until uh, until it was built, actually. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah. so later on, they brought in a lot of scientific advisors, you know, HHMI investigators, other sorts of folks who can sort of um, think about deeply how could we use this facility um, and, and this model to really attack something that um, that wouldn't get attacked in those normal funding mechanisms. And what they came up with was basically neuroscience and advanced imaging. Um, and the idea is we're going to bring in biologists, physicists, chemists, computer scientists, all sorts of people. Um, most of those will not have experience in neuroscience. They're just, you know, capable people coming in with a skill that is going to be applied in one of these areas and let them go. So then that was 2006. We are, you know, still very young. Um, but then uh, in 2016, I joined up in 2016. Um, we had a 10-year review and uh, they brought in those advisors and everybody to kind of evaluate, has Janili been successful? Or was this experiment worth it? Because, you know, granted, you are you're using HHMI's money, but you're taking it away from something else that HHMI could have done. So it wasn't a, wasn't a given. Um, but I think the, the assessment was that it was successful. It was, uh, it changed the course of, of research because one of the focuses is, for example, bringing all these people together, engineers and physicists working on neuroscience problems to create tools to further carry that research and that, that field forward. And there's a great case to be made that um, neuroscience wouldn't have gone forward as effectively, as uh, as as quickly had Janelia not been there, um, you know, making new imaging systems, new chemical uh, dyes, new biological fluorescent proteins, 
all that kind of stuff. And one of the examples is that there's the NIH Brain Initiative that um, is a big, you know, NIH-funded program that started under Obama. And, it, you know, the question is, would that have even been able to exist had Jamelia not been one of these groups that really dedicated, really threw a lot of resources at making the tools so that other people at other institutions can take those tools and, and attack a lot, in, a lot of other problems? Um, there, so another key ingredient is the, uh, the people that are recruited. So um, it, early on, especially when you're trying to get people to join your organization that is still effectively a startup, even though it's you know a, not exactly a startup where you're trying to generate revenue. Uh, so some of the scientists are a bit oddballs, and the best example of that would be Eric Betzig. Um, so he went on to win the Nobel Prize in 2014 for super-resolution microscopy. But at the time he was hired, um, I believe he was unemployed um, when Jerry hired him. Uh, he had been at Bell Labs in the early 90s. Um, he gotten he had been fed up with that sort of academic lifestyle, even though Bell Labs not exactly um, academia, um, and then went went out and uh, and started a company uh, and and worked out. In, in Michigan for a while, but I guess that didn't go great. So he was looking back, looking at how he could get back into that sort of academic basic research area. And that's, and that's where Jerry encountered him through uh, papers and stuff. And obviously that's a, that there's a success story. He won the Nobel prize based partly off of work that he had done at Geneva. A lot of it was done before, but you know, there's, there's a continuum there. And then currently we're bringing in a lot of people who are they're younger, um, so not not so many of the older oddballs, but just younger people uh, with high potential um, right out of training, whether it's the PhD or postdoc. So it's a little bit different than than your standard, uh, you know, PhD to long postdoc to or multiple postdocs to first faculty position. We're trying to get people early, um, get a, a new, fresh perspective every time. Wow, that's really fascinating. And in that regard, I know you have what's called or referred to at least on your website as a 15-year research model. Can you talk a little bit about that model and how it works? Yeah, the 15-year research model is relatively new. It came about after that 10-year review. Um, and the idea is uh, we don't want to stagnate. We don't want to uh, you know, just ride out whatever uh, successes have happened, um, you always need to be changing things up. So they they came up with the idea of these 15-year research models, um, and we will have three of them going concurrently. We currently have one uh, that is fully active, and basically what was the two focuses of advanced imaging and sort of a circuit neurobiology, which is more like essentially mapping out the brains of, uh, we largely work with um, with flies, uh, fruit flies, and and mice, uh, and also zebrafish and some other um, model organisms, but where we had been doing, you know, massive efforts to map out an entire brain, uh, now we'll be doing this next one is mechanistic cognitive neurobiology. That's a little more in the way of mapping out your environment in a brain. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the experiments would be put flies in an arena, have food in the center of that arena, turn off all the lights and see how they find their ways back and watch their brains to figure out how they're doing that. Um, so it's a little bit more dynamic than the, than the cir circuit neurobiology, but it's a kind of a carryover from that. 
we have these competitions for um, and the additional two areas. Um, and it's one of these high risk, high reward endeavors. So the idea is that each one of them will have 10 to 15 labs involved. It's a guaranteed $250 million over 15 years. So we would have two of those after the one that's already in place. Um, we did have a competition uh, in the spring. Uh, ultimately, one was the second path was not chosen this spring. Uh, partly that was because of uncertainties with COVID and all that kind of thing. And uh, and I think there was a little hesitancy maybe uh, to <laughs> to make that that call on what was the best of these. There were a lot of amazing proposals. I saw a handful of them, um, but. Uh, I, that's, there's a little bit of a delay, and, and we'll see what happens next. Um, so we're hopefully, we'll we'll get these next two uh, research areas going. And then in the me- in the meantime, a lot of the other stuff that was technically part of these research areas has become they've become permanent. Like the advanced imaging has been moved into our sort of tools and technology permanent research group. Uh, so that will always be there. We'll always be working on microscopes and stuff like that. Wow. And I know also you have a bunch of what that you refer to as support teams that are available. Can you talk about how they're used and what advantages they provide at Janelia? Uh, yeah. So support teams are on the continuum of sort of research groups uh, with also project teams and then the permanent research areas. So support teams are one of these key features where as I mentioned before, we um, you know, HTMI is able to throw a lot of resources at a problem. So these are permanent um, groups that support uh, the 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 research areas, the lab groups that are there trying to come up with great experiments and that kind of thing. Um, and their uniqueness is how well they're supported, their high skill level, and they're like close incorporation into the research projects. So for me, as the tech transfer person, they just they generate a lot of the technologies that I handle from model organisms to microscopes. Um, and, you know, viral vectors, all kinds of stuff. So one example is our Genelia Experimental Technology Group. Uh, we also call it JET. And that's basically the engineering machine shop group. And um, it's, I think, at, right now it's about 20 people and all kinds of uh, specialties in there from, you know, optomechanical to, uh, to mechanical electronic, uh, some computer science folks. And they're just there to serve essentially the the research. So a researcher might come down and say, look, I really need to do this with a fly or, or, or figure out this kind of experiment with a mouse. And, you know, this treadmill isn't quite what I need. And you sketch something out and then you get these these really high skill, you know, mid-career sort of um, engineers that are there to work on it and uh, you know they have their own independent budget and they can and they can just uh, develop something from the little hints that you give them and and it's just a a fantastic resource for all these uh, these research groups to have yeah, yeah that's so cool to be able to go down and have somebody build something that you need right there and then that's that's really amazing i don't think i've heard of any other organization that has anything quite like that yeah, it's it's fantastic. And one of the things that's neat for me as the dissemination person is that they'll continue to work on some of these projects and make them um, in put them in such a condition that we can make sure that other people get those. So 
you know, returning to a microscope example, they they produce things like a, a low cost but you know high performance and easily replicated multi photon microscope. And so we distribute those designs under an open source hardware license. We team up with other labs um, and uh, and and make sure that they're able to build those things somehow. We can't manufacture and give them ourselves, but we do everything short of that. And in fact, part of my budget is dedicated to making sure that if there's any shortfall or, or gap in a project is over, but it's not quite to the condition where we need the documentation to hand off to someone at another university that wants to do the same experiment, you know, I'll, I'll help fund that process. Um, but they, they do everything from those, you know, more low, those lower end of microscopes to, you know, our super advanced microscopes. And one of the features of Genelia is that we make some of the most advanced microscopes that were ever created. And, um, so we protect some of those and, and commercially license those in some cases in the, in the case of the low cost, you know, I do more of an open source license, um, and it's just uh, all of these groups, these shared resource groups, make Genelia's small, high-impact lab, lab structure possible because you can get all that stuff. You can't. You don't need to hire in for your lab and be an independent, you know, entity. Someone, some physicist that you don't have any understanding of how they work or you know how to manage them or anything, um, because th- those resources are available. You can get um, the best stuff in the world easily. So I, I mentioned those those are the uh, support teams. Then we also have project teams that are also more like uh, permanent research groups, and they're working toward a specific research end, and they also collaborate across the different research areas. So for example, we have Flylight um, that uh, used an electron microscope uh, system and set up and, and hired people to analyze these these uh, these images, and we spent you know thirty million dollars on a multi-year project to essentially map and and generate data of the entire um, uh, fly brain, so that other groups now can go get you know swaths of data of of an entire fly brain and work with that in, in their research. So th- those are a couple of things that um, that make Genelia a special place that you, you, we, we just continue to produce that kind of thing and have that support available and, and just continue forward, you know, reaching as far as we can. Well, let's um, switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, your office and your role at Genelia. Can you tell us a little bit about how your office is structured? Yeah, so I have a very small office. It is um, essentially me. I have an administrative specialist and then uh, part of the time from the HHMI assistant general counsel that is assigned to Genelia works with me on all the contracts and things. So we rely um, very heavily on outside counsel for all prosecution, other sorts of patent matters, and then, uh, you know, special transaction issues that come up uh, that are, you know, not consistently or something. So, but we're also, as I mentioned, fully uh, integrated into the organization. So accounting support, finance, anything like that, uh, they're just assigned to me like they are any other uh, department within Genelia. It does require, you know, a fair bit of explanation, especially when we get assigned a new person to teach people, okay, yeah, 
uh, tech transfer is a unique sort of financial beast. We have royalties, we have fees, we have exclusive, non-exclusive, we distribute some, we keep some. <laughs> There's a lot to, to work out there, but uh, we make that happen and, and we just work within the organization as, as best we can. Um, we cover a lot of bases, obviously, uh, with just a handful of us. Um, and uh, I, I actually enjoy that because it's like being in a startup. Um, it's all hands on deck all the time. So um, even outside of the tech transfer world, if we have uh, some issue, some topic that comes up and, and, and we need something done, and there's somebody with a related skill, then that person has to step up. And that applies to me as well. Um, so that's how I also came to manage a couple other departments that are not really related to licensing. So I, I, uh, do oversee the library and I oversee our, uh, community relations and external relations function just out of that sort of growth, having some touching pieces of this, and then someone had to step up and do it. But that's one of the great things about tech transfer and why I always liked tech transfer. I do feel like kind of a generalist and, when you're in this field, I mean, you're learning, obviously, intellectual property, um, finance, uh, legal terms and, and functions and agreements and um, analytics, communications, project management, all kinds of stuff. And uh, that, that's why I really like tech transfer um, and why I really like being a Janili because I get to, I never get bored. I, I can apply those skills to other things um, as we go along. Um, so, and then... Um, we handle everything that a typical tech transfer office handles. Um, the only, with the exception being, we're not big into the business of, of helping startups. Um, one of the reasons is that HHMI as a medical research organization hasn't historically been interested in doing like an accelerator or having a venture fund or anything, but I still support that. I, I work with local organizations, um, to provide training to, young researchers who may be interested uh you know we do work with we have startups um and then we're also focused on basic science so it's not like we're pumping out a lot of things that are ready to go into product development um, but those things do happen so we do have about five or six startups um, some of them are very substantial but the other thing is being a part of hhmi which is a, a broad dispersed elite organization um we we all have contacts of scientists who are actually in those big hubs. And so we're an exurb of Washington, D.C. and Ashburn here. Um, but we have lots of scientists who are collaborating with our people. And they're in Boston. They're in San Francisco, San Diego and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's not as appealing to start up right in Ashburn. Um, but we, we, we support that when it's possible. Yeah. And I think Janili is very interesting. And you've talked about this a little bit. Because when your researchers create innovations like these specialized microscopes that you've mentioned a couple of times, software or battery agents, you work to make these new tools accessible to other scientists as widely and as cost effectively as possible. And then you team up with nonprofits that are just as passionate about scientific discovery as you guys are. And then you work with commercial partners to that can build on those ideas and and ultimately produce new products, which I really think is a really very interesting model. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this works and give us uh, a few other examples? Sure. So this, to me, is the biggest uh, distinction between what I do at Janelia 
and what I had done and what a lot of academic tech transfer offices do, which is you know focusing more on that commercial licensing activity. So my mission is is very specifically to make sure that these things that are made, invented, developed at Genelia are available to the scientific community. Um, and so we use what is more like a, com- a hybrid of commercial and uh, open science uh, dissemination. So um, in a previous conversation, you and I discussed what, what we call the Advanced Imaging Center, which is a prime example of this. And um, if people are interested, there's a, there's a paper that we um, co-wrote with uh, Zeiss that, that gives more detail on this, this uh, sort of relationship and product development process. So going to the beginning of that whole project, we have some of the world's most advanced mi- microscopes, and um, they're made to achieve specific kinds of, of things, develop certain kinds of images, uh, do specific kinds of experiments and that kind of stuff. And I mean, frankly, some of those results, when you see them presented by the researchers, it's like science fiction. So Philip Keller has one where you're watching an embryo develop from four cells into a full-on organism that crawls away, and you're watching it through um, fluorescence imaging. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Um, so, but obviously, that's that's a big <laughs> that's a big haul to produce something like that. It takes physicists, it takes engineers, it takes biologists, everybody has to be coordinating and figuring out how to solve these massive problems. And then that's just to make a prototype and then sometimes replicate it um, and then go right on into the second generation and stuff. So one of these, just the components of one of these might cost a million dollars or more. And that, you know, doesn't even include then the the time of all these experts. So to disseminate that, um, we would A, produce a bunch of documentation develop workshops to teach others to replicate it. And again, um, as a tech transfer person, I'm thinking about my market segments here, even though I'm not thinking of them in, in necessarily commercial sense, I'm thinking of it as I want I want there to be a lot of experiments out there using this instrument that was invented at Genelia. So I have a market segment of early adopters after we do it. They're also well-resourced. They can send someone to Genelia um, and and maybe they can have an engineer and a physicist and a biologist on their team to replicate it. So we make all that possible. Um, then we'll also license out the rights to microscope companies like Zeiss, which I mentioned, uh, to make a commercial version that you wouldn't re- require all these people. Um, and hopefully they can reduce the cost, make it a turnkey system, and they'll do with that under you know like a an exclusive commercial license. But it will take a number of years. They'll you know put a lot of added value in that. Um, and, uh, and so we, in between that, we still have this gap of, of the, of the researchers that are really, um, you know, well-versed in this, of the rest of the world that is going to be able to get it through Zeiss. Uh, but you know, there's a, there's a many year gap there. Um, and so how do we get it to those people? Cause we still want it used. Um, and one of the things that we do is we have the advanced imaging center. And so we will, make another replicant of that instrument and we'll put it in this lab that's deep in the center of Genelia and we'll make it available to researchers, um, any any nonprofit researcher, they can apply um, and come for two to three weeks. We'll, um, Genelia puts them up in our in our hotel, which we have right on site there. You come over, you get support by experts in the instrumentation, experts in the data handling and so forth. And then hopefully um, you will be able to 
do a novel experiment and you'll do it on one of these uh, microscopes that has just recently been invented and published on. And, uh, and we can, you know, we can push that out. And then a group like Zeiss actually likes this because, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a diverse, interesting market, but the more papers that they can point to as they introduce some instrument that took them five years and many millions of dollars to develop, the more valuable it is to their ultimate, customer, the people who are going to buy that turnkey system. And, you know, it could be someone who actually went to the AIC and, uh, and uh, you know, wants to keep doing that, but they can't send somebody every two weeks and, and we're trying to serve a lot of people. And, and then they're the people that just want to get in on that. They've gotten their grant or whatever. So it's a really, it's a really nice continuum of this product development that we sort of take on ourselves. And, um, you know, traditional tech transfer would be just handed over to Zeiss and Hope for the best, but we we try to fill in all those gaps from the from the point where our uh, researchers have completed the project. That's really interesting, and I think that dovetails well into what I'm going to ask you next, which is I I like to ask my guests about how many inventions are disclosed to their office every year, how many patents they file on, and how many active licenses and licensing revenue or royalty revenue they get. And and I think for you, that answer is probably going to be a little bit different, given that your structure and focus is different than maybe the typical tech transfer office. Yeah, it's true. Um, so I do end up having to give, you know, a fair bit of my time to things that aren't, aren't typically uh, uh, going to generate a lot of revenue. But um, we do, I, I was looking back at the statistics because um, uh, I generate a report internally every year and we do receive like around 50 invention disclosures of some level a year. And then a lot of those are, uh, you know, figuring out how to get those out in the world, working through a repository with, if it's like a, a reagent or, uh, or something else, it might be added on to uh, a commercial company who's going to put that dye on a on an antibody and sell it, that kind of stuff. But about, I'd say around 10 a year are really the sort of platform innovations uh, that justify unique patent protection. So uh, yeah, around 10 a year are really that sort of high intensity stuff. Yeah, that makes sense given the way you've described how you know, Janelia works and how your office works. So that, that I'm actually surprised that it's that high because I would think that, uh, you know, a lot of that is, is some, like you said, platform technologies that maybe you're just not going to protect. So, so that I still think that's a pretty good number. And how about your active licenses and patent royalty or licensing revenue? Yeah. So we have, um, I also checked back on this. We actually have around 90 uh, revenue generating licenses at the time, because a lot of those are, um, they're non-exclusive licenses, uh, which is one of the sort of ways that we practice this open dissemination model where we're going to give, you know, some reagents out to companies that will generate a product with it. We're going to give it to companies, pharmaceutical companies that will use it internally, um, all kinds of stuff like that. Same thing with some of the instrumentation. Um, we may not file a patent protect file a patent on it, um, but we'll make all the documentation available. We'll facilitate all this knowledge transfer, and we'll get a small, you know, deal out of that. Because I don't, I'm not in the practice of giving things away to for-profit companies. I am in that practice for nonprofits, but we do generate a lot of um, a, a wide spread of different kinds of licenses. Um, so, uh, and then I don't generally. 
uh, report the revenues. Like I don't fill out the autumn survey and stuff because I, you know, I don't want to get into an apples and, and sure. oranges comparison yeah. there. But even even the way that I operate, um, it's we're near cost neutrality for for the organization um, because uh, you know now we've been around for ten years and licenses have been going out you know in substantial ways for half that or a little more and some of the things like our G camp fluorescent dyes are. Um, I think because of this model that we have, they really dominate the space. Um, they are they are the go-to fluorescent reagent for certainly for neuroscience, um, and then increasingly in like cell biology, which is an even bigger space. Um, and that and the um, that and the lattice light microscope that um, is part of you know Eric Betzig's whole story. Uh, those two things just generate about half of our income on their own. And, uh, and as I said, you know, G-Camp is, it's an interesting example for me, uh, because we make that available to researchers for free. We work closely with, um, and, and frequently with another organization called AdGene, which is a place to deposit, um, plasmids. And, uh, and then they, uh, they distribute those for you, uh, at, at cost and stuff. So it's a great open science model, um, and then we have all all sorts of these uh, products, so it's made an enormous impact on the field in in science in general. And there are over like, I think last time I checked, there are over fifteen hundred publications referencing the original paper. Um, so you know, by <laughs> when you have that much use and that much activity, you're not only like really driving the science forward, but it you know the revenue does start to. Uh, flow in. And this is actually one of my propositions for tech transfer um, in general as an industry. Um, as you know, we figure out what's next in the future, world is always in flux. I think it would be um, a, you know, a good opportunity for in spaces like this to give a little more support to that sort of open science model because you know, like I said, we have 1,500 publications using this reagent. That's that's so valuable to society. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we're a nonprofit. We're not using federal money, so it's not people's tax money, but it is like tax, you know, exempt money. Uh, so it's it's a privilege that society's asking us uh, to do things, and we're doing those things in return for that that, you know, financial benefit. So I think some tech transfer offices could maybe – uh, give this a shot too, and I'm 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 a, I'm going to start uh, promoting that a little bit at some of the meetings. <laughs> I think you definitely should. And on top of that, those uh, success stories that you've mentioned already, can you tell us maybe a, a couple more, or give us a couple more success stories that that you guys have had? Yeah, in addition to those, the G Camp and the lattice light microscopes, a huge one is Janelia Floor dyes out of uh, Luke Lavis's lab. And that's uh, those are synthetic dyes. So the G camp is a calcium uh, uh, sensing protein that fluoresces when there's activity, uh, you know, in a cell, and you're watching it through a microscope. Janelia fluor dyes are a synthetic dye. They're based on a rhodamine scaffold, which is a common. A lot of this is it's not. Um, the the basic framework has been known for a long time, but uh, you know Luke made some ingenious developments and, and additions that that just made him like head and shoulders above anything else that's that's out there, and uh, and it made a lot of formerly impossible experiments uh, possible. And this is this is Jerry's favorite uh, development because when he 
talked about it at the 10 year and, and some other times there, there's a story of, um, you know, Luke released the dies and was getting feedback and some postdoc somewhere who had been struggling, uh, you know, with a project and not getting the, the, uh, the results that he needed. He tried this dye and he, and he literally started crying at his microscope because, I mean, it just transformed his life, what he could do now. Oh so my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's all over the top a little bit, but just that, that's the kind of thing that makes, when I report internally, when we talk about this to HHMI, that's the kind of thing that just, you know, people get really excited about. Um, so that, that Janelia floors are, is probably our, our biggest, our flashiest one at this point. Um, and then the, the neat thing about that is also be with my non-exclusive licensing uh, strategy on some of these, um, on, on the dyes and reagents and stuff, that's getting incorporated into a lot of other technologies. Um, so it's in, there are several companies that are putting it into uh, diagnostics. Um, there are companies that are putting it into, into therapeutic screening methods. So um, trying to do high resolution stuff to to screen compounds and that that kind of thing, um, and so yeah, my my bosses are are mostly thrilled to see you know postdocs crying at their microscopes, but <laughs> I'm hopeful that when they see some of these commercial applications and the impact it will have on other sort of directly human applications, it uh, they'll be happy about that too. And then similarly, we have two uh, things in the last two years that were also their research tools. They were made to, one was a, is a viral vector platform that was made to deliver payloads to uh, neurons in, in specific uh, uh, channels in the brain and move up that channel. And then another is, um, it's a genetically engineered uh, channel, a chimeric channel that responds to a, a small model, a small molecule therapeutic that's already been approved um, and that was to study pain. Um, both of those, those, those are platform th- th- uh, strategies that can be applied in therapies, and they both have been. So the, to me, those are the, also the most exciting ones because they're in companies right now. One's in a startup, one's in a, in a, um, a gene therapy company, and they're in development to be, um, you know, hopefully on the market in eight years. We all know how, how that works. But the other thing is that they're so, they're so cutting edge. So the one where it's the channel plus the small molecule, that's a, that's a chemogenetic therapy. And it's just, there's nothing out there like it except for that company and one other one that we know of. So it's, it's really exciting to push those kinds of things forward that just, they're just sort of accidents. Cutting edge boundary pushing type things. Yeah. That's pretty exciting. Well, how about some of your offices or maybe your office's two biggest challenges? Yeah, so um, it's certainly a dynamic environment. Um, and certainly this year has been crazy for everyone. Yes, uh, Not definitely. in great ways. Um, I'd say over the years, though, one of the issues we have is this disseminating more uh, complex devices. So like the AIC, I gave that example of a way that we solved that. There's, you know, stage A, here's some documentation. Stage B, we'll make it and you can come use it. Stage C, it gets the Zeiss and they will sell you one. Um, we have a lot of stuff that is not necessarily, you know, there, there's, there's a spectrum of whether it's meeting that threshold of we should invest in something or it's too small. We're not going to have people come in for a specific kind of cell sorter. So we'll give you the documentation, but even 
with the documentation, that's a, you know, it's a, a threshold to be able to uh, replicate it and use it and all that kind of thing. So that's, that's one of the issues that we have is working in this space where my goal is dissemination and I'm not always uh, using the the market, right? It's a, it's, it is a market. It's not the, you know, the market where profits are, are easily found. Exactly. That's, that's where we have um, issues. And we have a new executive director as Jerry actually retired from the the lead job uh, last year. And Ron Vale came in, he's from UCSF and he has a long uh, background in dissemination and making interesting things and putting them out there in the world. And so, um, He's also very interested, and in, we've been discussing uh, what are some models, what are some organizational models, you know, other nonprofits, other ways to structure a, a for-profit or a program or something where we can get more of these things out there. Um, and then, of course, you know, COVID kind of shut everything down. We're going to have people in to have a great debate, but uh, but maybe next year. Um, and then, I guess one of the things that I'd like to do is hire a licensing manager at some point. Um, but, uh, you know, being a, a really small place, um, and a really unique place, it's, it's not easy. I, it's hard to get right. Um, so I, I recently tried to hire a data management librarian, which is also a very unique, rather new career path. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that was difficult. Eventually I got, uh, I got the person that I wanted, but I got her as a, uh, as a consultant, not as a full-time employee. Um, but, uh, that, and then with, the turmoil in in the economy and everything uh, coronavirus related, we've been, uh, you know, our, our budgets are in a, uh, a standstill at the moment. So, yeah, it's it's trying to it's trying to bring it's it's always that trying to bring in a resource for a unique situation or or apply what's out there in the world to a unique situation and and do it well. <laughs> that's that's the issue. Yeah, that's. And that's always a challenge in budget and and enough resources or something I hear from technology transfer office to technology transfer office. And I I think it's just going to get harder and more difficult and more challenging given this current pandemic and the fact that it's dragged on just so incredibly long. But, well, let's turn and talk about women inventors and entrepreneurs, because there's a lot of activity, particularly Autumn's heavily involved uh, on this topic does your office or does Janelia have any programs that help encourage or assist women inventors or entrepreneurs? And if so, could you talk about those in a little bit of detail? Yeah. So my office doesn't really, I mean, it's just any, any initiative is just me. So um, it's, uh, and we're integrated in. So we work through the, uh, the institution, but Janelia in general has a huge amount of effort in the area of expanding this access to us, to science, to, to expanding, uh, you know, what we call DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Um, and uh, HHMI in general uh, has been working on this, especially when um, another thing that happened in 2016 was our president of HHMI turned over and Erin O'Shea is our new, our new president. And, and she's particularly interested in this. So we have a lot of initiatives um, to try to, to try to expand diversity, be more inclusive and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I'm part of that. I'm part of those initiatives and groups. And then I bring, when we have these conversations, when we talk to, uh, folks, uh, that's, that's the perspective that I can bring to that. 
And I mean, H. Jemai has had for for years, actually, uh, through our science education division, uh, a lot of um, resources going toward trying to recruit and support uh, a, a more diverse uh, scientific research population. Um, so we're doing things, um, and I, I I am excited. Our our most recent two hires uh, that I think they just arrived. Uh, one is in our chemical tools and theory, or and uh, theory and computation, and they're both uh, women, and they're young women just out of training. Uh, like I said, I uh, postdoc or, or PhD, and I've had to, a chance to meet with them and talk about tech transfer. Uh, that that doesn't sound like much, but w- at the moment we only have like 45 group leaders, and there are now two of them. So, and they're at the very early stages. So, if uh, if we can get them, uh, you know, disclosing and in, in, in this conversation. And in these two groups, I do have a lot of engagement with the chemical tools and the theory and computation who produces software, because we also deal a lot with open source software and that kind of thing. Um, then I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, they're, they're always, it, it's more inclusive. It, it provides some examples and, uh, and that kind of thing. But I do have to say, I mean, I'm really in support of this. I, it is something that in your day to day, sometimes you, you're not, I mean, me being a uh, male, I it might not be in the forefront of my mind constantly, but you look back and you're like, this really is a problem because even through my career, it, there is this um, this unbalanced, uh, you know, disclosure rate and engagement rate, and and so I think, I, yeah, I'm I'm really excited to to help out with that and and try to spread out the. <laughs> the activities that we all should be, you know, we should be engaged in everything that, that happens in science. And so uh, hopefully we can make that uh, a more open and inclusive environment. And Autumn's doing a lot to help on on that front as well and has a lot of initiatives. And in fact, that's a good segue. Um, I'd like to ask uh, my guests about the organizations that they're involved in. And, and I know that you're involved in Autumn, but very heavily involved in LES. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your um, involvement in both of those organizations. Yeah, I've I've been con- uh, almost consistently involved in in both. Uh, Autumn also helped me start my career. It, it was Autumn that I went to uh, after I had my first internship. It was a regional Autumn meeting in in uh, Austin, Texas, and that's where I made some connections to other offices that led to that job at at UTMB. So. Um, Autumn is great, and I've been going to those meetings for for many years. Um, I'm I'm more deeply involved in LES, um, and I'm on you know meeting planning committees. By the way, the the uh, the annual meeting is coming up in October, um, so hopefully people will will participate in that. I'm on the Young Members Congress, the Life Science Leadership. I'm actually the chair elect for the Life Science sector this year. And uh, and I'll be installed as a board member for LES. Congratulations! Um, yeah, thank you. So I'm looking forward to that, and uh, and just trying to recruit people and in to be active and stuff. They're both great organizations, um, and of course, when you're in a small office and you don't have you know a lot of resources to pull off on your immediate peers and stuff like that, they're they're it's invaluable guidance. And you know, Autumn has manuals, and LES has. Um, all kinds of studies, and I just prefer LES a little more because of the a level of subject matter expertise around some of the more technical aspects and and investigations of contractual obligations and stuff. And and also, I've been 
you know, being out in industry a little bit and startups, I, I, I like that, that perspective. Um, so like, for example, I've, the last couple of years I've coordinated, uh, workshops that touch on gene therapy, um, from a bunch of different perspectives. We had a great one last year, which was, um, pricing. We had a lady from Spark Therapeutics, uh, talk to us about how she, and she was the key player in this, how she, came up with with her team the pricing for Luxturna, which is a gene therapy, which, you know, it costs seven hundred thousand dollars, I think, per eye. Um, and so how do you how do you get to that point and what are all the trade-offs? So um that that was the kind of thing that I really like putting together and, and getting a, a a um a diverse audience at at LES uh to to engage on and stuff like that. But they're both they're both excellent organizations. And also, I really appreciate Autumn because another thing that I think is going to be more important um, going forward is, is the uh, public relations and the lobbying. And I've seen, you know, Autumn has really done that for a long time. Um, and I think, again, with all the turmoil that's going on in society with and without coronavirus and stuff like that, that it's it's going to be necessary for us to advocate for the the stuff that we do and uh, and the benefit that it brings to the world. Absolutely. So what's your view on credentialing things like RTTP? Do you think it makes a difference? Um, yeah, so I've gone back and forth on that over the years, but I think honestly it does. Um, and so I'm a registered patent agent, um, which is, uh, I did that when I, I started in the field and it wasn't necessarily because I expected to practice, but um, I wanted sort of a standard of training and patents, like a basis of knowledge, and to show I was serious about the field. And at that time, I don't think RTTP certainly wasn't around, and I don't think CLP was. So that that performed that function for me, even though it's you know meant to be essentially the license to practice t- with the USPTO. But I, you know, CLP and RTTP uh, work in that regard, in that sort of. Uh, level of proof uh, that that platform of knowledge that I can um, that I can believe you have when I encounter you. I actually used to have a CLP designation, um, but when I was in the the first startup, which was struggling, the you know getting the the training and and paying for stuff was not the priority, so I let it expire. But um, and uh, and they are useful in a transition. So when you're encountering other people, obviously that's when it's a big deal. And so at job transitions and things, so it hasn't been the biggest thing on my mind lately, but I did uh, decide uh, in the last you know month or so, actually after listening to some of your discussions on this in, in these podcasts, uh, I'm going to go ahead and get those those again. I, I registered for the CLP and I've got my application to RTTP in because I think it is, it is helpful. And, uh, and especially as I'm, you know, trying to be more of a leader in the, in the community, to give credibility to it and, and, and sort of show that I believe in it, which I do. My, my only concern is that it doesn't become a barrier to entry. Um, because we wanted to have the credibility of something like a, like a CPA, you know, a certified, uh, public accountant or something, but not be a legal requirement to practice, which is not necessary. Yeah. It's kind of like, I'd like what the USPTO has done with like, you have your patent agents, registration number, you took the patent exam, but you're not an attorney. So, you know, anybody with a, as long as you have a science background and you can meet the the requirements that the patent office has, you can take that exam and become a registered patent agent. So I, I think um, hopefully the CLP and RTTP won't become those barriers, like you mentioned. 
Right. Yeah, but they they are um they're, they're good. I mean, I honestly I I nerd out on that stuff, and I, I like <laughs> kind of just studying <laughs> and, and re, you know going back and going back through the uh, the tech transfer practice manual and reading some of that stuff and and remembering you know it may have been years since I first encountered some of these particular subjects and and it's good you know to 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 rehash and and to uh, and to just make sure that you always have that that consistent base of knowledge absolutely well mike i always like to end the podcast by asking my guests if they could have three wishes granted for their office or if they could have a vision realized what would that be and for you and janelia what would that be i think that would be uh solving one of those problems that I mentioned, um, that somehow uh, making it possible to accelerate the adoption of our technologies, particularly those that don't have a, you know, a great market profile through some sustainable mechanism. So it's not always me like trying to squeeze another dollar out of whatever budget I have. <laughs> um, and I, as I mentioned, we, we were planning out some brainstorming sessions with advisors, but, uh, but never it, it got interrupted. And I mean, it, it would be useful because um, in addition for my hope that other institutions will, will practice this a little more, there, there are other groups that are very similar to us that have these same problems. Allen Institute in Seattle, they have a neuroscience group, Max Planck. Um, we all work very closely in the same neuroscience area. Um, and neuroscience is a particularly... Uh, I think th th this problem is is particular to neuroscience because these are really big, hard problems, and you need to come up with a lot of devices to study those problems. So I think it it provides a good sort of example of of how to do that because then there are certainly other fields. I mean, like uh, high particle physics certainly beat us to it. CERN has been trying to deal with this uh, for for decades themselves. Um, so. Yeah. So an example would be if I could just get, you know, I mentioned our Genelia floor dyes. They're fantastic. They're out there. You can buy them. Um, you can get them in other ways. Um, the, but those are still the first generation ones. And we're in like generation six now. If I could just get generation two out to people um, in some sort of consistent way now instead of, you know, in a year and a half or whatever, that, that would accelerate science uh, so much. Yeah, definitely. It, it would be great. So that would be my my uh, sort of vision for Janelia consistent and and where we could join forces with a lot of other groups. Maybe we'll figure that out. Well, yeah, good luck. I hope you you do. So, well, Mike, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Yeah, uh, thank you so much uh, for for having me. It's been a great honor to to be on here. I listen to some of your other podcasts and you know to be included with all these these leaders and stuff and it, it's been fun um and certainly people can reach out to me um my email is uh, it's my last name m so p-e-r-h-a-m-m at uh hhmi.org you can hit me at janelia.hhmi.org or hhmi.org so either way i'm i'm happy to take queries Awesome. Well, great. Thanks so much again, Mike. It's been a real great pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. 
New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.